Postcards from a Dying World, the podcast. For more than a decade, I've reviewed over 1,000 books that are mostly science fiction, horror, and bizarro. This feed will feature bonus audio I have produced over the years, as well as a monthly digest of reviews based on what I've read each month, plus the occasional bonus material about my own fiction. Thanks for listening. Okay. Uh, Cody Goodfellow. So I'm here with Cody Goodfellow, author of uh, Perfect Union at the 6th uh, Annual Bizarro Con in Portland, Oregon. And uh, we're going to talk about his work a little bit and then some general horror stuff um, and maybe a little lightning round towards the end. But um, uh, Cody, you your career started with um, a Lovecraftian um, series of books, The Radiant Dawn and A Ravenous Dusk. Um, how do you feel those books fit into Lovecraft mythos? And um, maybe we could just start with just giving a basic introduction about what those books, uh, how those books kind of launched your career. Well, uh, well, uh, they are well, they were a conscious attempt to. Uh, pay back the the inspiration and influence that uh, I'd gotten from the Cthulhu mythos. And there's something set within uh, uh, Lovecraft's uh, Cthulhu mythos. Explicitly, they were intended to be kind of a sequel. Not really a sequel, but a uh, an inheritor uh, from uh, At the Mountains of Madness, which was the book in which he most explicitly or broadly delineates what the you know, the history of the Earth and how it fits into uh, his cosmology. And uh, it gives the, you know, the, the origins of life on Earth and the origins of, or the purpose of evolution, the purpose of life on Earth. And uh, so it seemed like the best entree to try and do a story that would take Lovecraft's horror and not ape his original approach, which is anachronistic in his own lifetime and very controversial and not not altogether popular, but to find a way to make what he did scary again to a modern audience that would not be familiar to it, with it. And so I was trying to do something, not just uh, f- uh, make up uh, my own entity and my own you know forbidden uh, book, and write a thing that would cater to that narrow audience, which is, ever since Lovecraft's death, there's always been a very deep but very narrow and small uh, insular uh, community within a subgenre within uh, the science fiction fandom. But to do something that would actually bring new readers into it, do something that was essentially to the unwary masquerading as a as a science fiction techno thriller with you know police procedural and political conspiracy theory thriller uh, overtones to it but then at the very core of it what you find out is that, that it's a it's a cosmic horror story so I was trying to trick new readers into into reading it uh, but because it was a self-published book uh, it didn't ever uh, really find an audience um, in the last five six years uh, there's really been a mushrooming of uh, small press, uh, new cosmic horror and Lovecraftian horror stuff. Everybody is starting a new uh, publishing house. There's Kickstarter campaigns everywhere to uh, to launch new new publishers and new lines. 
and uh, some of these small publishers uh, are are doing quite well um, by doing uh, these kinds of anthologies. And Chaosium, which is a role playing game company that uh, that introduced a lot of uh, a lot of readers and writers of my age to uh, Lovecraft through the role playing game, uh, which is itself pretty controversial. They've been doing uh, fiction line. Uh, sporadically for the last 20 years, but in the last few years they've been doing, they've been grinding on a lot of these, and so a lot of the most, while I'm trying to kind of move past Lovecraftian stuff as a as an explicit influence, uh, because I mean you you look at somebody like Ramsey Campbell who started writing at 16 and publishing at 16 and corresponding with August Derleth, and he wrote a book of his own uh, Cthulhu Mythos stories that was published before he was 20. And so very early on, he'd kind of digested that and was looking for new, his own ways to express that kind of horror in his own voice. And I think that if you look at the, 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 the explosion that's happened within the, 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 the community in the last five, six years, you're seeing a lot more explicitly Cthulhu type of stuff. Cthulhu has to be in the title, uh, really, to, to market these things. Because, like with zombies, there's an omnivorous audience that will buy it as a completist, regardless of its quality. And uh, the worst books that I've ever finished were Lovecraftian horror uh, pastiches. <laughs> and I won't name names, but... Uh, it, so it, to me, it pains me, and it's kind of driven me away from a lot of uh, a lot of modern uh, Lovecraftian horror myself, because uh, it's something I want to love so bad, so much, and and it's it's painful to see when somebody misses the point, and that's where where it could easily be loved to death, if uh, if the stuff that's coming out treats Cthulhu as a new kind of Godzilla or as a new kind of Satan. And kind of grafts the love, the trappings, the stuff, the the forbidden books, the gods with the unpronounceable names, and the lost civilizations. If somebody takes all that and grafts it into uh, into an adventure science fiction uh, milieu, or a you know, or a paranormal romance milieu, it steals all of what actually makes it work, which is these philosophical underpinnings. Uh, this has actually come up in a conversation like two, three times already this weekend. Is what makes Lovecraftian horror. Uh, really so zesty it's not just the tentacles and the and the forbidden books it's the fact that it you don't have to believe in anything uh to uh to respond to it it's a it's a way of it's a mythology that's responding to existentialism and the the complete obliteration of the notion of uh of of gods and so if you take away all belief and there's still something out there in the dark that's looking back at you uh that's kind of uh, where people's heads are at. Yeah, well, and I, and I personally, I find that the best cosmic horror is is more unknown and more what you're, uh, what you don't see, and just the, that whole idea of it's really beyond our grasp. And the more we kind of throw tentacles at everything, I think that the I don't I'm not to say that it can't be done, but it sometimes it gets cheaper. But and I think you have moved past that um, as far as like that's. Not all you're known for, obviously. Um, you know, uh, you are, I think, pretty well considered a Lovecraftian expert, uh, and I think you've earned it. Uh, but I, I think also, like for example, your novel *A Perfect Union*, which, which I saw is a, a really great hybrid of of um, kind of a haunted house 
feeling and atmosphere with um, an almost um, body, uh, an almost Cronenbergian body horror that became something that was so entirely its own. Uh, can you uh, talk about how uh, you developed uh, Perfect Union, which, by the way, is number eight on my all-time horror novels list? Wow. Thank you. Um, well, I'm honored. I, I, I wish uh, anybody else felt that way. Um, it <laughs> Originally, oddly enough, that uh, book and uh, that storyline had started out as uh, an explicitly Lovecraftian mythos uh, kind of a story. It was uh, using uh, these uh, monsters that Ramsey Campbell had invented called the insects from Shigai who are these uh, ethereal uh, otherworldly uh, parasites that can inhabit human beings and cause mental illness by driving us around like vehicles and using us to, to using us as vehicles to fulfill our own worst desires we think it's really us doing it um and it underwent a, a variety of mutations as i i thought uh if i make it into something like that it's only going to be something that's going to appeal to a fraction of the cthulhu mythos audience which again this is you know perfect uh, union came out three years ago i wrote it five years ago i had been conceiving it for several years before that uh but I was, that was my attempt to write as close as I was ever going to come to a mainstream uh, small press horror novel. The kind of things comparable to the kind of things that, uh, that Brian Keane or Ed Lee uh, uh, do. And um, it didn't reach that audience. I think it probably, it, it probably still had, as you say, it, 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 it was definitely, there's a, a lot of conscious homage to, uh, to Cronenberg's work. It probably is too cerebral. Um, I think the people that uh, that reviewed it on Amazon very enthusiastically and said that it has like politics and philosophy in it killed it for people that wanted, <laughs> really wanted, you know, uh, a, a bloody monster fest with teenagers lost in the woods. And at its very heart, that's what it really is. It's a bunch of teenagers get lost in the woods and bad shit happens to them. Yeah, and it works really well as a horror novel, and, and I think the the political aspects to it are cool and, and, and an additional thing, and, and uh, I really hope that doesn't scare people away from it, because uh, I think that's what makes it stand above. Um, you know, not that those other authors, you know, aren't doing great stuff, but I think that that's what makes A Perfect Union a really original piece. Um, well, it's not. It doesn't have. It doesn't have a political slant. It doesn't have a political agenda. It's not. No, even not a at all. Political stuff. Yeah. It, it 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 looks at how politics are or politics are a symptom of psychology. Um, you have three characters in it who are the uh, two two brothers and a and a guy who's married into the family. So he's their brother-in-law, and he's trying to relate to them and. Uh, you see how their upbringing and how their perception of the world as it was shaped by their early childhood uh, expresses itself and how they think the, the, the world should be run. And it's looking at politics as a reflection of family. Um, one insight that, uh, that came to me when I was looking at, the, at these characters and what made them different and what made them uh, look at the same situation and see it diametric in diametrically opposed ways was that uh, everything that makes a family uh, uh, a good and solid and successful family is uh, it's essentially socialist. And you see, you know, when you see, uh, when you hear people decry uh, liberalism as a, as a nanny state, it's a rejection of, uh, it's, it's a rejection of being taught, of being treated like a child 
by a by a parental by a parental state but it's a it's a it's weird how uh the things that make families work are the things that we are least willing to to uh to see in terms of of how society should be run and and there's a there's a real weird disconnect there it's a, it, you, if you look at government from a from a far enough standpoint it it's it, a really odd dysfunctional family yeah well, okay, so the change tracks a little bit. Um, one of the things that, um, one of the reasons why um, I saw that we got along uh, so well as as um, horror writers is that uh, we both come from a similar background of, of having grown up in the post-Stephen King, post-Clive Barker horror, um, you know, market. And uh, the first time I saw your, like, wall of, of paperbacks, I knew that, um, that uh, we came from a similar horror gene pool. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, what, what I would like to at least like kind of ponder is um, how is this generation of horror writers, our generation of horror writers, who came up in that post-Clive Barker, Stephen King era, like how do you, how do you see um, you, you, that, what are the challenges that we have of creating our our voice for this generation well it's it's weird because like with every other subculture in our society now um it's very easy for a very small group to uh inhabit a bubble or an echo chamber where they have this sense that they're changing the world and that they're the the uh the voice of their culture um, where, in fact, you know, nobody outside of the bubble, nobody at the nearest coffee house has ever heard of them. Um, and so with, like, the, the, the horror community, you know, the horror small press, uh, you're seeing a more of a fragmentation. Uh, as with everything else, you're seeing all these different schools and stuff, and you're seeing groups that used to fight at these conventions, you know, the quiet horror people versus the splatterpunk people. They don't have to fight at these conventions anymore because they have their own message boards. They'll have their own conventions. Um, they need not interact. Um, and so when the interaction does happen and it's, and, it's, and it's collegial, you're seeing some really interesting stuff. But everything everything's atomized. It's not just fragmented, but it's atomized. You can... The, uh, there, there are these schools and there are people that very self-consciously ascribe to I'm going to write the kind of thing that I grew up reading. I'm going to try and write like splatterpunk stuff. And you know, as with the Cthulhu stuff, a lot of times you see a lot of the, the extreme horror people who are trying to pay homage to the splatterpunk people or the splatterpunk uh, work kind of missing a lot of the, the philosophy, a lot of the, the ideals and the concepts behind it. You look at, uh, I mean, an author that, whom we both uh, both uh, very justly admire and are enamored of, John Shirley. Shirley is uh, his genius is being able to fold concepts and ideas that uh, that uh, quite often pop culture will choke on into something that into a very uh, entertaining, very engaging, candy-like shell. And so it's it's that kind of that kind of thing that. Uh, we at the you know the, the best of the bizarro work and and the, and the people that are that are teaching workshops here this weekend uh, are are really trying to inculcate as a value into the young bizarro authors is to do something that is very crazy and insane and seemingly lowbrow but if within that you're delivering not just not just not a lesson it doesn't have to be didactic but 
if you're if you're actually you know delivering ideas and concepts and giving something that people are going to think about something tricking people into thinking yeah. yeah something that will something that will remain after the shock shock value and the sensationalism have waned then you're going to do something that that will have uh, a meaningful impact on a on a mainstream audience on an outside audience if you can get it in front of them okay um, all right, so I'm going to do a little bit of lightning round, and then then we can uh, talk about what works you've got coming out. Right. Um, so, uh, what are five off the top of your head five horror novels that you think are underrated, cr criminally underrated that people should check out that they may not have already read? Um, Wet Bones uh, by John Shirley. Yes, by John Shirley. Uh, one of the, I think both of our favorites. Uh, right. I I would say uh, God, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on on his best novel, but uh, uh, David Scow uh, doesn't get enough uh, recognition. He pretty much wandered out of the horror field as much because yeah, uh, his Seeing Red collection is just fantastic. I was just gonna say Seeing Red is probably where it's so much of the energy and passion really is. Uh, yeah. Uh, and to anybody who would who would seek to write modern horror story, horror short fiction, I would recommend seeing Red uh, unqualified. Yeah, a collection fits this criteria. <laughs> We're good. Okay, good. <laughs> uh, then I would also add Dangerous Red by Mahitable Wilson. Ooh, I have not read that. She that. is the best voice of anybody in our age, and it's it's like pulling teeth to get her to deliver a story because they do come from a really you know passionate, soulful, painful place for, uh, mm -hmm. from her. But every piece that you can get from her is like a diamond. She's a genius. Hmm. Um, uh, God. Uh, uh, Michael Blumline um, hmm. is another one of my favorites who was kind of parallel with the Spider-Punks but never really engaged with those guys. He's actually a practicing physician in San Francisco. Uh, and he wrote a couple of science fiction novels, very J.G. Ballard-y type of books called The Movement of Mountains, uh, and another one called XY that's a horror novel that came out from the Dell Abyss line. But his best collection is a, a book called uh, uh, The Brains of Rats, another just phenomenal, seminal, incredibly potent, uh, uh, surreal horror collection. He has a new book out from uh, Centipede Press called What the Doctor Ordered. And unlike a lot of Centipede Press books, it's actually affordable as a reading book. Wow. <laughs> and I haven't read it yet. It's one of those books. He's one of those people that I hoard, uh, yeah. that I, 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 I won't read one of their books until I have, like, five, just because I, I can't conceive of running out of them. Okay, so since I'm doing this on my blog, I'm talking about classic science fiction bizarro novels, mm -hmm. and some of the ones that have been on my list have been, like, The Void Captain's Tale by Norman Spinrad, mm -hmm. um... I think I just did Two Hawks from Earth, uh, Philip Jose Farmer, and um, uh, Philip K. Dick's not getting on there till number one uh, with uh, Three Stigmata or Palmer Eldridge. And that's one that we've talked about before, but can, can you tell me about some classic um, bizarro science fiction novels that you're a fan of? Oh, man. Um, you'll edit out all the dead air and ums, right? Um, <laughs> I'll try to. Christ. <laughs> yeah, uh, there's, I've got like... Uh, Stacks of really, really crazy, weird ones that like these one-off books that uh, that uh, uh, by you know authors that that didn't catch on and they were trying to do like Gonzo '60s counterculture things. Um, Christ, 
Well, I know uh, Barry Maltzberg, for example, is like one that he, I don't think he wrote mm-hmm. too many books, but like Beyond Opalo made my or list. Or uh, John Sladek, like TikTok. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, maybe kind of late, but uh, but uh, my favorite bizarro science fiction books are still Rudy Rucker's uh, Live Robots books. Yeah, yeah, that's actually number six on my list is software. Okay. So, so we've t- we've talked about software. Yeah, and it was um, it was your recommendation that got me reading Norman Spinrad first with uh, mm-hmm. Men in the Jungle and Agents of Chaos, which are really early. And if you factor in, and this is the thing I always point out about Men in the Jungle is it was written the same year that Star Trek came out, and the villain eats babies. <laughs> and and that's pretty much like all you need to know about um, like the same year Star Trek came out and babies being eaten. My favorite uh, by him actually though is I would have to say the Iron Dream yeah. is my favorite just because the whole concept and it and it it to me it becomes more and more relevant as time goes by as we're kind of as as science fiction as a community and and as a body of literature is trying to figure out where how it stands with dealing with the whole concept of the other. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, because we we're running out of people that we can successfully clown without getting back talk about it, <laughs> and so we're down. You know, uh, with with the Iron Dream, uh, you have you know basically Adolf Hitler is instead of instead of uh, conquering Europe, he moved to America and he becomes a pulp writer, and he writes this book in which this uh, Aryan wet dream messi- messianic hero cleanses the this post-apocalyptic wasteland of these disgusting subhuman creatures and you very he very beautifully shows you and very acidly shows you how propaganda in one realm could very easily be very acceptable escapist entertainment in another and that and that uh you know uh, making up an other you can make up an other that's a monster that's a puppet that you can beat up but uh, you can very easily shift that around and make that into a, into a way of sending people off to camps. Mm-hmm. So uh, his stuff, it's very bizarre, but it has it. it, uh, it, it there's definitely uh, rocks in uh, in his socks. <laughs> That's awesome. So uh, let's get to your work. And so you just recently reissued a novella that you wrote with John Skip mm-hmm. um, that. Um, uh, you changed the. T- I know you changed the title um, of. Uh, I know it as as the day after. The day before. The day before. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> so I knew it. Something. That's why we changed. Day, exactly. That's exactly why we changed. And uh, so now it's the last goddamn Hollywood movie. Yes. And um and it's a really fantastic novella. Can you give us a quick uh, uh, idea of what that's about? It's about a uh, a film crew. Well, a, a crew of Hollywood refugees who successfully weathered the uh, the death of America by nuclear war uh, by hiding out on Catalina, and they uh, decide that with the, the whatever amount of time of life they have left, they're going to try and make a revisionist feel good biopic about the uh, jackass who caused the war. Uh, in order to in order to help America find its heart and get back on its feet again, and so they're trying to make the last great Hollywood film in the uh, middle of the uh, smoking, gro- uh, glowing crater that uh, that was once Los Angeles, and uh, it uh, yeah it's uh, it's 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 a basically a feel good fun piece that uh, a lot of movie producers really liked, but they would have loved to see somebody else make it. <laughs> right. So yeah. yeah. So what's next up for you as a, a solo writing artist? 
My, I just finished my fourth solo novel, which will either be called Donnie Punani or Repo Shark. Uh, it's a 70,000 word novel about a repo man who comes to Hawaii from Las Vegas to take back a vintage Harley Davidson motorcycle from a wear shark. And uh, I'm not sure who's putting that out. Could be one of the Bizarro uh, imprints in the next several months. Uh, after that, I've got a lot of short fiction coming out and uh, some commission jobs, which will be a surprise. But uh, one of the things I, I, I just did that's fun, uh, that uh, I just did a, a Rocketeer short story. Oh, that's uh, for, awesome! For a new uh, IDW anthology, where uh, uh, the Rocketeer teams up with the flying with the flying tigers to fight against uh, Chinese sky pirates. So that's going to be an Excellent. anthology that IDW is putting out early next year. And Skip and I did a story uh, for their Zombies versus Robots uh, anthology series uh, with uh, Zombies versus Robots versus Mennonites. Mennonites. All right, awesome. So, are you and Skip working on anything long, long form anytime soon? We have a nonfiction book that we're committed to delivering by summer uh, for uh, next Halloween called the Monster Bible. The Monster Bible. Yes, that sounds interesting. Okay, so um, yeah, I'm really excited about. It sounds like um, uh, Johnny Pumani. That's did I say Donny? Donny. Donny Pumani. Yeah, that sounds like. um, it's more straight up bizarro than anything that you've put out before. It's is like, that? It's like a much more sadistic and perverse Elmore Leonard novel, really, in a lot of ways, because it has like the the exotic location and that would be a great blurb. But uh, <laughs> it uh, it's and it's it's fun. It's more fun and lighter and tight than anything else that I've done before. Um, but we'll see. Uh, I thought I thought Perfect Union was my most accessible book too. So, well, uh, I'm looking forward to it. Um, uh, so, I, I think we kind of addressed this in the first question, but um, I know some people have been, uh, you know, wanting to hear what your opinion of the um, kind of the Lovecraft latest fashion, kind of like that that it's the kind of the new trend and and horror that it's becoming like the the zombie thing. I mean, it's not as bad as the, the zombie thing got, but, um, and, and really part of the whole reason why I wanted to interview you is because uh, I think writers from our generation aren't, aren't being heard as much. Right. And um, so maybe we could end with just um, like talking about, um, you know, where you think the future of, of Lovecraft is going. Well, I can never look at a, at a trend like this that continues to grow and and expand and deepen without trying to figure out what the psychological appeal is. I mean, and you look at, like, the zombie thing. It's no longer shocking. It's no longer really terrifying. It's It's been thoroughly domesticated, and yet people still consume these kinds of stories. And, I mean, the conclusion that I came to was that it's, you know, kind of concurrent with the rise of, of new libertarianism, where uh, it's... It's it's a it's a neat new way of seeing the modern landscape, almost as as if you would preparing to go to war, where you're dehumanizing everybody else in that landscape, and you're kind of seeing ordinary life as being uh, just a, a a life and death struggle against idiots, um, which is what I hear a lot of a lot of people uh, a lot of people describe uh, American life. And so, with something like, with some, will something like Lovecraftian horror and Cthulhu mythos become as big as zombies? 
No, because I don't think it has. A, it doesn't have as broad and as universal and as deep an appeal. But for the people it, whom it does appeal to, it's. Uh, I think it's the best kind of blend of of what horror does best, which is a blend of confrontation and and escapism. It confronts a lot of the hard, bleak truths about life on Earth and life in the universe, and yet at the same time, it's it. We understand that it's is kind of fundamentally ridiculous. It, any face that you put. Onto the onto the 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 abyss is going to eventually become commonplace and then kind of and then kind of silly, and so Cthulhu is inevitably going to become uh, domesticated and and become something that's that loses its potency to uh, to to speak for that darkness and that's already that's already happened. The plushies aren't 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 you know aren't sounding the death knell of the Cthulhu mythos as being something scary. Uh, they're they're showing how pervasively it addresses all kinds of different needs in uh, it, in modern life, and I think uh, just as I'd said earlier that that it's it's pulp existentialism. I think the Cthulhu mythos offers a, a way of, of looking at the universe and looking at uh, looking at everything flying apart and 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 accepting. And almost kind of finding a, 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 a being able to laugh at the realization that uh, that entropy reigns and uh, that there is no center. Well, and I personally would be really excited if AMC did a Lovecraftian uh, TV show. If we could get to that point, I, I think I would be okay with that as long as it was the right people writing it. But uh, you know, and that's what it—that's uh, what a lot of it comes down to. Well, the people but... that are the people that are doing it aren't doing it. I mean, as long as the people that are, are doing it aren't doing it purely for money. Um, I mean, and I, I we've, uh, like everybody else, have always looked with a mingled and eager anticipation and dread as the uh, at the Mountains of Madness project got yeah. closer and closer to, uh, to fruition because it's impossible for any one person to be able to get a, a project to market that is that uncompromising without in some way having to broaden its appeal. And there were a lot of things about it that were kind of making people nervous. And yet, um, I had the opportunity to talk to, to Guillermo a couple times. I worked at a bookshop that he uh, that he frequents, and I asked him about it after the last time that it was shot down. And he said, "I'm still going to do it. I'm going to fucking do it because because he he believes it, it, it's it's what he got into doing movies to for. do. Yeah. And so whether or not it's it becomes a, a hip thing or, or becomes uh, uh, the new zombies or, or tr- anybody tries to market it as the new zombies after after those people go away uh, people will still be using those tools to try and to try and express horror and do and still doing great stuff with it. Okay. Because we're powerless to stop. Okay, last, and then uh, just real quick, um, what do you think is the, uh, for anyone who's out there and wanting to start writing horror uh, and weird, bizarro science fiction, that kind of thing, what do you think is the, is the core of, of storytelling? What, what do they have to focus on most as they develop their craft? Uh, figuring out, it, it should be a response not to just other people's fiction. It, it it so much of of what horror uh, of what's made uh, the horror fiction explosion kind of just really sort of redundant and 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 kind of sad is that a lot of these people that are writing horror they're really ambitious and so they read all the horror that they can get their hands on and that's all they read 
and that, and thus it's only scary to people that have only already read all of these other books or it only is really relevant and so if you're going to try and do something that's bizarre and horror, uh, horrible and scientific it, it it needs to connect to in some way the outside world if it if, if it just feels like all of your experiences all of your descriptions all of your scenes your plot and your characters came from other books no matter how cleverly contrived they're going to be it's going to it's not going to hold people's interest because there's so much else going on it needs to in some way bring a little bit of real life real life fear real life wonder and awe into it thanks thanks Cody. Rock on. Woo.